Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shepard Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. This has certainly been an interesting week and weekend for me, as it's the first time I've had to produce the podcast while being on the road. Last week, I was in Hot Springs, Arkansas, in Huntsville, Alabama, facilitating workshops and trainings. And today, September 27th, I'm working in Grable, Wyoming. So with all of the COVID testing required to cross the border to to and from, um, I just decided to stay down in the United States for the weekend. And I have to say, it has been so refreshing and so reinvigorating to be back with people face-to-face. There are still, of course, many protocols in place, but the energy of a face-to-face workshop or training is irreplaceable. I just hope that continues. Thanks for listening in again this week, and as I always say, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Your listening and following the podcast is greatly appreciated. And of course, as I always say, if you enjoy the podcast, please spread the word on social media or spread the word with your friends and colleagues. Today, my guest is Dr. Kathy Vatterant. Kathy is famously known as the homework lady, so we definitely dive into that topic and the much bigger picture of student stress and anxiety. That's something Kathy's been uh, researching more recently. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to talk about peer assessment and the many iterations and potential outcomes of this powerful yet often underutilized practice. So, that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My interview with Kathy Vatterot is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a story. About 15 years ago, somewhere in the mid-2000s, we had an issue with our transmission on our minivan. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking already, a minivan, Tom, there's your fundamental problem to begin with, right? (laughs) I get it. However, anyone with kids, especially anyone with kids under 10, knows there is no better people mover than a minivan. Bikes, beach toys, drive through road trips, you name it, the minivan does it all. And yes, we definitely grow in and out of the minivan phase in our lives, but the minivan is a short-term staple in most families' lives. Now, there are always a few holdouts, right? Those who smugly claim to have avoided the minivan phase. Why? Why is that something to proclaim? Do they actually think people are impressed by that? That anyone really cares that you kept cramming your kids into the backseat of your cars while ours just seamlessly frolicked into the middle seats of our three rows of comfort seating people? Seats that you could remove to pick up the new bunk beds? I just never understood that proclamation. You know, oh, you avoided the minivan phase. Oh, it must be true. You are a better human being than me. (laughs) It's nauseating. Anyway, enough about that. Okay, so... Let me set the stage. It's the mid-2000s, I want to say 2006-ish, early August, and I'm away. I'm in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I was doing some training for the Ministry of Education there on PBIS. So at the time, we lived in Penticton, BC, as many of you know, a small town about four hours east of Vancouver. It's a small town of about 35,000 people. So one day my wife decides to take the kids to Kelowna. She drives an hour north to Kelowna, BC. That's, you know, a much bigger center, I think around 120, 130,000 people, more extensive shopping, Costco, bit of a day trip, what have you. All right. So out of nowhere, the van starts to run really rough. So my wife pulls over and calls BCAA. You know, that's our version of AAA. 
And they come and they guess. Their best guess is it's the transmission, so let's get you to a transmission shop. Okay, so they tow the van. They uh, they check it out at the transmission shop, and sure enough, it, they say it's the transmission, right? The mechanic tells my wife we need a new transmission. It's going to be something like 3500 bucks or $4,000 or something like that, right? That's the last thing we need. So Nova Scotia is four hours ahead, so it's early evening for me. When she calls, she tells me we need a new transmission. I said, was the van completely dead? She said, no, it's not dead, but it's running really rough. And I said, well, can you at least get it back home uh, to get it fixed back in Penticton? She says, I'll check. So a few minutes later, she calls me back. And uh, the guys there say, reluctantly, they'll patch it up, no guarantees, but that she should be able to make it home in that hour drive. So it's one hour. She said she'd already arranged to have one of her friends pick her up in case the van conks out halfway down, uh, back down the valley. Um, everything's arranged, so she makes it home, drives it straight to the transmission place uh, by the early evening. So the next day, the transmission shop in our hometown checks it out, they inspect it, and here's how the story was relayed to me from my wife. She says, the mechanic calls her and says, you don't need a new transmission. It's just a gasket or a seal or something relatively minor. You, you can tell I don't know much about vehicles, right? <laughs> you don't need a new transmission, he says. My wife says, are you sure? Mechanic says, yes. And then my wife says again, are you sure? Because the guy in Kelowna told us we need a new transmission. The mechanic says, do you want me to put one in for you? I definitely can do that. My wife asks, do I need it? The mechanic says, no. Second opinions, right? Now, the optimist in me says, okay, well, clearly the first guy misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed the issue. Now, the cynic in me says the guy saw her coming and tried to upsell her, take advantage of the situation, get her to replace the transmission. Now, the fact that he patched it up makes me feel a little, made me feel at the time a little bit better, but I'm pretty sure he was still trying to sell her on uh, a new transmission. I have no confirmation of that, just my best guess. Second opinions. Something's wrong physically, go to the doctor. The doctor is either not sure or you aren't sure of their diagnosis, right? So you say, you know what? Without hesitation, you say, I think I'm going to get a second opinion. Mechanics, second opinion. Doctors, second opinion. Lawyer, second opinion. That's all perfectly normal, apparently. Seeking a second opinion seems to be quite common in our society, except maybe in education. Why? Now, you may be a good teacher. You may be a great teacher, but you're not perfect. And you're certainly not above a second set of eyes. Are we just supposed to take your word for it? Something so critical as our students reaching high levels of intellectual performance, we're just supposed to take your word for it? Why? Did you just take the doctor's word for it? Or did you go and do your own research? And I'm using air quotes when I say research because I know in 2021, quote unquote, research equals I have Google. Did you do your research and then maybe seek a second opinion? Or go in and challenge the original diagnosis by your doctor? The notion that teachers are just somehow above an external second opinion is at best naive and at worst the height of arrogance. A second external perspective or data or information, whether or not our students have reached the levels of proficiency that we claim they have, is not only something we need, but also something we should invite. 
Oh, I can hear you now and feel you now. And I'm sure some of you are even triggered at this point. Second opinion, Tom. Don't you trust teachers? Listen, don't get distracted here. This isn't a question of trust. I absolutely trust teachers, but I also know teachers are first and foremost human beings. And as human beings, we are susceptible to the same biases that everyone else is. Same mistakes, same misdiagnoses that mechanics make, that doctors make, that lawyers make. I never quite understood this fragility that comes with any hint of an outside source of data or an outside source perspective. We really should be seeking an external validation about any assertion we make about student learning. External. I use that word intentionally. External, Tom. Are you about to advocate for outside standardized testing? I said external. Who said anything about standardized testing? I certainly didn't. I haven't mentioned standardized testing at all. If my using the word external caused you to immediately think of large-scale standardized testing, then that's on you. Now, I'm not anti-standardized testing if, and, and listen, this is a big if, and it's one I'm not sure has been reconciled or resolved. If it's properly used and we use large-scale assessment for large-scale decision-making, it has a place in our system. There are ways to properly do it without beating teachers up with the data or negatively impacting school funding and all of those sorts of things that happen mostly in the United States. If you want more perspective on standardized testing, go back and listen to my bonus episode from last February with Tom Gusky about standardized testing where we talk about item sampling and all the ways, all the different iterations that we could sort of create that wouldn't bring, bring it back or fall back on the classroom teacher. Okay, listen, I admittedly use the word external, you know, intentionally, because I knew for at least some of you, it might trigger an overreaction. So if that was you, uh, sorry about that. All I mean when I say external is outside of you. Other members of your department, your teaching partner, your collaborative team, Someone who can be that second set of eyes that draws the same conclusions about the body of evidence that students produce. Many of you are innovative and you are trying what we might call more progressive approaches to learning. And I love that. I love it. But students reaching sophisticated levels of thinking through project-based learning or inquiry-based learning is not automatic and it takes time to refine. The potential is definitely there, but it's not automatic. You know, these assertions, let the students explore their passions and curiosity and amazing amounts of learning will occur. Just get out of their way. Really? Every time? It never fails? It never falls short of the desirable outcome? It's just that simple? Just get out of their way? I think it's a lot more complex than that. And I think the teacher's influence is a lot more important than just get out of their way. Trying something new gives us all more reason to seek a second opinion. Through common assessments, for example, you and your collaborative team can work together to ensure that we all have a similar, like-minded view of what excellence looks like. And we can work together to ensure that our collective assertions about student learning are substantiated. Even when you're right, don't you want to know that you're right? In isolation, even the best teachers will misdiagnose next steps or misclassify a body of evidence. But together, we can and will create a collaborative system of checks and balances. 
That system of checks and balances will ensure an alignment to standards of excellence that gives each of us the individual confidence to make more accurate judgments about student performances. You see, that's the irony of this whole endeavor. The more you work collaboratively and seek second opinions about the degree to which your students have met the learning goals, the more competent you will become in making those decisions on your own. Second opinions I'm talking about here is the professional judgment of other educators. You know, from my perspective, the collaborative teams that calibrate and keep each other in check raise the credibility of their professional judgment about student learning. Now, this job is hard. It is incredibly rewarding, but it is really hard, and the stakes are high. Our students deserve educators who can set their ego and fragility aside and lean into the collaborative efforts that confirm the judgments and assertions they make. And administrators, you have to support this work and be supportive of the growth and maybe the growing pains that come with it. Collaborative teams that are misaligned need support and regular opportunities to keep developing their collective alignment. When that alignment is off and they are, you know, maybe all over the place when it comes to these assertions about student learning, they need support. They need encouragement, they need time, they need the opportunity, and maybe they need you to run a little interference with parents and families and even central office. Look, I was intentionally a little provocative by using the word external, fair enough. However, I don't back away from the sentiment. You know, I once heard the expression that teaching is the second most private act human beings can engage in. Now, I'll leave it to you and your imagination to figure out what number one is. The second most private act. But it doesn't have to be. In fact, it shouldn't be. As professionals, we need to get over our insecurities and our fragility. And on the other end, we need to get over our ego. We need to set all of that aside and lean into the idea that together, which is something that doesn't come naturally for a lot of educators, together in our assessment work, we will be that much more precise and will be that much more grounded in making assertions about student learning. Leaning into the work, seeking a second opinion or some kind of external verification is the epitome of humility and professionalism, but it also potentially leaves us vulnerable. Now, vulnerability is supposed to be a sign of strength. I know that's what we tell our students, and it's certainly what we say in the abstract. Maybe it's time we took a little of our own medicine by letting down our defenses and embracing the opportunity to seek a second opinion. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Kathy Vatterot. Kathy is Professor Emeritus of Education at the University of Missouri in St. Louis. Uh, previous to that, she was both a teacher and a principal. She is the author of four books, including the most recent publication, Rethinking Homework, second edition, which came out in 2018, and also 2015's Rethinking Grading, Meaningful Assessment for Standards-Based Learning. Kathy is best known as an international expert on the topic of K-12 homework, and on standards-based grading. And over the last several years, her work with high-achieving secondary schools has been the catalyst for her latest research, which has been about writing and researching teen stress. So we're going to focus on both of those topics today. Kathy, welcome to the Tom Shimmer Podcast. 
Great. Thanks, Tom, for having me. It's great to see you again. Been a few years, uh, but I'm following everything you're doing and it's all been great. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks. Yes, it's wonderful to have you here as well. And as I was mentioning to you before, uh, it's great to reconnect. And one of the uh, wonderful parts about doing this podcast is, of course, having guests like yourself on the podcast. But it is also a great opportunity to reconnect with with uh, friends and colleagues from the past that I have lost touch with. And, and so this is a great chance for us to reconnect and a great chance for us to have a conversation. So let's jump right in. Uh, you, of course, uh, are known as the homework lady for all the right reasons. Uh, your expertise is obvious. Rethinking Homework was originally published in 2009, and it made an immediate and significant contribution to the never-ending discourse on homework, so much so that a second edition, as I mentioned earlier, was published in 2018. So let's start with the best and the worst of what homework has to offer students. At its best, Homework is what? And at its worst, homework is what? At its best, homework would be a way for students to get excited about learning, for them to explore topics in more depth, and yes, for them to get practice or for them to uh, apply their learning. At its worst, it is, first of all, a thief of downtime, family time, and sleep. Also, at its worst, it could be a mindless task that just kills the curiosity and the love of learning. Um, and I think most importantly, at its worst, it exacerbates inequities. And in more than one way, when we talk about inequity, we think about economic inequity, the homework gap, which by the way, has been around for years. But it didn't really get enough press until we had a global pandemic for them to realize that, oh, there's a gap here economically. But just as importantly, it exacerbates inequities between struggling learners and learners who are not struggling. So you send a task home and the struggling learner says, oh, my God, I'm so stupid. I can't do this. And then you have other students that learn rather quickly that are saying, why do I need to do this? So I think those are the probably the biggest um, concerns I have about homework at its worst. Yeah, this is the, a constant conversation amongst educators. I mean, homework conversations uh, were around and debates around homework were around when I was starting teaching in the early 1990s, and they seem to continue. You mentioned the pandemic, and of course, we are still in the midst of the pandemic. I'm wondering from your perspective, you clearly hear from a lot of people, how have the conversations changed? We know that because of COVID and because of the situation that all educators found themselves in, that some of the conversations that had been long overdue were accelerated because of, of what happened acutely in the spring of 2020 and the onset of COVID. So what are some of the uh, interesting maybe conversations you've heard or been a part of and that collective rethink about homework due to the pandemic and due to what's happened during, during COVID? Well, I think it's been real interesting to see uh, which tasks got done. So when we looked at um, which tasks were meaningful to kids, uh, that actually got accomplished and which tasks allowed for choice. But I think the other thing that we were seeing is that, boy, this is about engagement. You don't have, uh, if you don't have ownership of these tasks, you don't have engagement. But also the grading issue came up like in a really big fashion. Yeah. 
as we looked at, well, gee, how do I how do I grade them for not logging in? How do I grade them for not completing a task? And so I think those are the the conversations that really um, got to be important. And as well as uh, parents don't want this job, you know, that became very clear that parents don't want to be the homework cop. And and I think that was very important, too. Yeah, it's amazing how many so many so many of those topics uh, really blend together, you know, hearing about teachers, you know, I'd hear questions about Tom, what do we do about academic dishonesty? And that speaks to the quality of what students were being asked to do at home, which ties right in with the homework issues. You talked about the best and worst scenario. And that's why sometimes for me, I know I get a little frustrated when homework is sort of talked about as a kind of singular exercise, as opposed to asking the question, what is the quality of what students are doing? And and that and does that bring value? So one of one of my favorite things that you say, Kathy, and I, I love this quote, I use it all the time in the workshops is because I think you can if you have a particular position on homework, you will be able to find an expert or an authority who will support your position. Uh, if you're anti-homework and, and homework is of the devil, you'll find someone who'll support you in that. Yeah. If, if you're not, you'll find the opposite. I love this quote. You say, quote, the value of the research is in the broad strokes it paints, not in the minutiae. That its value as re- its value comes from as we reflect on the logic of its conclusions. Do they make sense for our population of students? So like I said, there's no shortage of opinions about homework. And most of them are not on the fence. Most of them are quite definitive and absolute. You can almost find the research you're looking for. So help us with those broad strokes here in 2021. What does the research on homework tell us? And maybe more importantly, what does the research not tell us? Right. So uh, in order to talk about the research, we need to understand that the research is deeply flawed and that most of the research over the past 40 years has been comparing time spent on homework to achievement and trying to correlate those two things. Um, So I guess one of the benefits of those those um, that research on time is that it did show us that there is a limit to time, to how much time is effective. And so it reinforced a longstanding 10 minute rule that the maximum amount of homework for a child should be 10 minutes per grade level per night. And that seems to be consistent with that research on time. That said, time is not the metric. What we need to be looking at is task, is what is the quality of the task, as you said. Now, another piece that's been used over and over again is that, well, there's no correlation between homework and achievement at the elementary level. So this has given um, cover to elementary schools who wanted to uh, get rid of homework. That said, does that make sense? Does it make sense that a child who practices math would get better at math? Doesn't it make sense that a child who read more would get to be a better reader? And so that's the part we have to look at. What we found out in different research was that reading for pleasure correlates for in, with increased standardized test scores at all levels. And so if we were going to do anything at elementary, why wouldn't we just do the reading? So those are those I think are the are the biggest issues. And the fact that um, Hattie, John Hattie, one of my favorite researchers here, 
when he looked at the correlation between a practice and achievement, homework ranked 88th, mm-hmm. yet formative evaluation ranked third, yeah. and, um, and feedback ranked 10th. So what does that say about how much we're doing, how much we're doing with homework that is ineffective? So I always say it's not that homework doesn't work. It's that there's a lot of bad homework out there. Right. Yeah. Low quality assignments that, you know, uh, packets and things like that. And I think, you know, as you talk there, it makes me think about, you know, is one of the challenges and maybe problems with the way we talk about homework is that we have such a narrow view of what constitutes homework. We often think of homework as, um, you know, something that the teacher assigns, or we think about those stapled packets that students have to fill in at the elementary level, instead of trying to realize that homework can be very expansive. And I've heard yourself and I've heard others like uh, Harris Cooper and others talk about taking an ex- a more expansive view. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what could we include as part of quote unquote homework that maybe teachers aren't thinking of right now? Well, I think the first part is that we need to be creative and that, but also that we need to quit looking at it, limiting it to practice. I think that is a mistake. I think we should be using it more for diagnostic, more to check for understanding, and more for application. So for instance, why do we give a traditional task like practicing math when we should be asking kids to go home and apply that math to things in the pantry or to cooking? Um, Why do we not let students have choices about what they should be doing in order to learn something. And my, my, my early on example, when my son was in fifth grade, I guess it was, or fourth grade, whatever grade, um, and they sent him home to memorize his multiplication tables. And they said, everybody needs to write them three times. And I'm like, well, that's not how he learns them. So he wanted to make a rap song. And I said, why could we not allow students, give them the goal? and allow them to figure out what task will get them to that goal and then have them practice their method, give them a no count quiz, and then let them say, oh, this this method didn't work as well for me. So I think we're missing the boat by um, designing the task when kids could be designing their own tasks. Yeah, I think we are. uh, I think the upside or the optimism of what you're talking about there is that I think never before in my career have I seen more teachers open to more a student-centered approach to education, never mind homework. At the same time, I think you and I recognize that while we have more openness to that idea, there is still a long way to go to creating that real authentic agency and choice for students in how they sort of apply or practice assignments. And I think one thing that everyone agrees is that sitting at the kitchen table for three hours struggling through something is counterproductive to any sort of learning and counterproductive to my disposition because in the end we really want students to have high rates of success with that which they are working on at home whether it be practice or application so that leads me to the next question you know homework as i just mentioned could be a major contributor to stress and anxiety levels in our students and I do want to pivot to stress and anxiety in general in a moment, but I want to stick with homework for, for this last question, and then we'll, we'll pivot to the larger question about stress. We know that some stress in life is unavoidable, but that said, 
What are some strategies and some approaches to homework that teachers can use to try to minimize the stress levels of their students and make homework a more productive exercise? I think the first thing that teachers need to do is hold harmless. And what I mean by that is that this cannot hurt a student, which means we either don't grade it or we give them an opportunity to make up the work. We grade it very lightly, but that we actually hold kids harmless for these tasks. Um, then the second thing, when we look at what we're doing, I just think so many of the things we do don't make sense. It's like, if we know kids have other obligations outside of school, why do we give a, why do we give them a task at 3 p.m. and expect it to be back at 8 the next morning? Why aren't we doing more weekly or monthly long-term assignments for kids? Why aren't we being more flexible in terms of when kids are allowed to turn things in? So uh, I think that is a huge piece. And then you talked about the agency piece. Uh, I think kids need to have choices. I think we need to, to look at uh, and I think we need to look at how kids have time during the school day for kids who don't necessarily have a good environment at home to work. Right. That's something for sure that we have to consider is, you know, there is an underlying assumption that that assigning something for homework or asking students to apply something at homework or even if the students are making the decision on their on their own to extend their learning at home, that there is a supportive environment there and we have to account for the fact that for many of our students, uh, there is not. Can you maybe just quickly uh, an example of, of how, you know, you might, you might have a teacher listening right now saying, okay, uh, I'm in, Kathy, I, I want my students to have more choice and, and agency, but I don't really know how to do that. So what is an example of what a teacher could do to bring students inside the conversation to say, okay, students, here's where you have some choices around what is quote unquote for homework? So um, I wrote an article a few years ago about a school in Norwell, Massachusetts that was doing what they called student owned homework. Okay. And the teachers would present the goal to the students. Students would brainstorm how they might reach that goal. And then they would, um, then they would get an agreement between the teacher and the student. So for instance, if their job, this was uh, the one I'm, that's coming to mind is, a, is I believe, a first grader uh, that said, oh, well, I need to practice my counting. Um, I did, I counted my brother's trophies at the Taekwondo uh, class. And the students come back and say, yes, this is what I created. Um, so I think there are uh, a lot of ways to do that if you, but that means kids have to be familiar with the goal. They have to understand the goal and perhaps they have to look at some examples of those goal uh, uh, options. Um, and that's one of the other things teachers can do. They can provide options to kids. They can provide options like here's this video you can watch. Here's this assignment that you can look at online or here's this assignment that you can use. So for the most part, kids are, once you give kids that agency, they're pretty, they're pretty uh, creative at coming up with what they need. Uh, the problem is teachers are hesitant to give up that control mm -hmm. because they're going, oh my God, what if I do that? And then the student doesn't learn. Well, then you do something different. Right. Um, but aren't we supposed to be telling kids that it's okay to make mistakes? 
Yeah. And and so I think that's part of the the dilemma with that, with letting kids uh, have some control over things. Yeah, I, I suppose at, at its worst, it's it's about giving up control and, and worries about that at its best. And most optimistically, you have teachers who just don't want to lose or be inefficient with their time. And they want to make sure that every opportunity to learn is maximized. And, and maybe there are places where those types of um, opportunities are not necessarily supported uh, by administration, or they might be not supported by parents. And there's all sorts of pressures on there. But yes, you know, the, the point about just being being able to let some of that go and and being able to to know that it's okay that if it doesn't go perfectly the first time that I can try a different approach and continue. That's how we learn and grow as professionals, right? Um, I want to shift. Uh, but oh uh, yeah, go but okay. Um, and that is that we have to let go of the idea that our tasks are infallible. Yeah, uh, like that teacher that said, write those multiplication tables three times. I think we have an idea in our head that says, oh, this will get you to the learning that I need and not necessarily. Right. Yeah. And, and I think the, the, the larger point that you made earlier is focus on the, it sounds very flippant when you say focus on the learning, but, but we really create this idea of focus on the learning, not the task. The task is the means to right. an end. So right. the, the end goal, as you mentioned earlier, what is the, the learning that needs to occur? And the agency can come through the task. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so I want to shift to the larger picture. I mean, homework is obviously included, but we want to shift to anxiety, stress, and and just the pressure of, of being a young person in today's society. And I wonder what your perspective on this. Do you think adults, you know, teachers, parents, families, uh, do you think adults today minimize what it's like to be a teenager compared to when we were young? Is like, you know, is it is it harder to be a teen in today's world? And and if so, like why 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 is it harder to be a teen? And why isn't why isn't that sort of flippant comment like, well, I had to go through it when I was young. Uh, it's good for them too. What's different, and why is it more stressful to be a young person in today's society? Well, first of all, I think I think as teenagers, there is a lot of whining. So I think it's easy for parents <laughs> to say to say, oh, stop okay. it. It's Fair not enough. bad. You know, <laughs> uh, I think there's a lot said there. But yeah. I think the I think there's a lot of things that are different today. Uh, but I think the one of the biggest issues is this hyper connectivity that with technology that they are 24 uh, seven. Uh, they are they have this connectedness. And so here they're trying to figure out their identity. But guess what? They have two identities. They have their real identity and then they have their virtual identity. Yeah. And so I think that makes things so much more complicated. Now, with our students, to me, our middle middle class and upper class students, I think have an additional issue. Um, and that is that there is this sort of mass hysteria out there right now of this, um, this academic climate that says that if you don't get to Harvard, you're going to be homeless, you know, um, if, yeah. that there's only one path to success and it's, and it's this. And, and I, I, what that's led to, this general concept has led to this, this parental pressure these this relentless parental expectations that you have to get the grades, you have to get you have to you know get into the right college, 
and I think what that does to kids is it gives them this idea that the only thing that matters is the future and the present is not important. Mm -hmm. And I think that doesn't fit with what they know is going on. They know they're going through puberty. Yeah, let's see if parents can remember puberty, for goodness sake, um, physical, intellectual, emotional, social changes that are happening during this time period for kids. So I think those are probably the biggest things that make it harder for kids right now. Yeah, that connectivity. I, I know something like Instagram can be uh, the best and the worst of what society has to offer and all the filters and all the things that go on. It's an interesting uh, dichotomy as well, because one of the questions I ask in workshops from time to time is how many of you would go back to junior high? This is asking teachers, how many of you would go back to junior high and almost no hands ever go up unless I'm, I, I suppose, unless you peaked in junior, junior high, uh, no, no one would go back. Right. So right. it's interesting because, because my follow-up to that is often then why do you keep telling students that, and, and, and children or teenagers, why do you keep telling them that this is the best time of their lives? Yeah. Why, why do you keep telling them that this is the greatest time in their lives? And, and, and yet none of us would go back to that environment. And now, as you say that, that, dual sort of personality or that, you know, my online persona and who I am in real life, they start to blend. And, and pretty soon you start to see, uh, you know, that anxiety and that stress and that pressure just just continuing to emerge 24 seven because someone's always got it better. And I think adults suffer from that as well in this oh, yeah. age of social media. Look, schools don't have control over everything that contributes to students anxiety and stress. It's not all on the school. However, Schools do have control over a lot that does contribute to student stress and anxiety. So what are some school-based sources of that intense stress and anxiety that students feel? And what can schools do to mitigate or minimize the impact of those sources and the influence it has on student stress and anxiety? So um, Challenge Success, a group coming out of Stanford, did a study with NBC News recently and they were asking kids about stressors. And the number one stressor was grades, tests, and other assessments. And the second one was workload and homework. Mm -hmm. So that gives us the cue right there, what we need to be looking at. So I know I'm speaking to the choir here, but standards-based grading yeah. is, does so much for students. It gives them back control it, it helps them focus on what's important, but also look what it does to things like homework and workload. If the goal is to show and demonstrate the learning, then maybe you don't have to do all that homework. Maybe you're only doing what gets you to that goal. When you think about what stress, I'll tell you what stress is. Stress is one, is one shot grading. Do I know it Tuesday at 10 o'clock? And if I don't, I'm screwed. Right. Compared to uh, the idea that it is possible to redeem yourself, um, that to me is has the bigger has the biggest issue, but is the biggest issue. Yeah. But also the idea that in secondary schools, do teachers coordinate workload? Do teachers coordinate homework? Do teachers coordinate projects? Uh, and final research papers, do they coordinate them with extracurricular activities when the football game is, when the play is being held, when the concert is being held? Those are, you, 
absolutely right. I mean, you talk about workload and you talk about the way we grade and the stresses of grading. I, I think about workload. You, you, you made me think about this continuing pressure around AP, for example. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why schools continue to allow students to take six or seven or right. even eight AP classes. A college freshman doesn't take seven right. or eight AP classes. Right. Why are we... Right. How, why is this pressure and and why are we allowing this to, you know, parents, they don't know any better and they look around and they think, I, you know, other kids are doing it. I want my kid to achieve at a high level. I don't really blame parents for, right. for wanting their to have their children aspire to high levels. But what can we do to stop this frenzy that gets created around advanced placement and other sort of sort of programs like it that that schools seem to not pay attention to how the how it's impacting uh, the, the students in their school? Well, I think one of the interesting things about the pandemic, one of the interesting outcomes is when they started saying that we're we're not going to put as much emphasis on on the standardized test scores and we're not going to put as much emphasis on uh, we're going to look more at, at uh, the essays. We're going to look more at those kind of things. So I think there are some changes afoot there. But I totally agree with you that we need to be educating parents about uh, the stress that these things cause. We also need to be educating teachers about what does AP look like if it's really college level, then it shouldn't be homework piled higher and deeper. It should be a, it should be looking at the depth of learning. And I think there's ways for that, that to be less stressful. One of the things I didn't talk about when we were just talking about stress is what does the student's day look like when they go to school? And some interesting studies have come out. Um, I think the one that pops into my head was called Unlocking Time. And it said that if you really wanted to help reduce stress for kids, you would uh, give them more like uh, five to seven minutes of passing time instead of three minutes. Wow, what a concept. Um, can we get rid of the bells? You know, talk about frenzy, you know. And then can we look at... Uh, 30 to, they're saying 30 to 45 minutes for lunch, for instance. Do we have a non-academic block of time during the school day where teachers can see students that are having issues? So all of those things are just, why aren't we looking at some of those pieces as well in terms of what that kid's day looks like? It is, uh, it, it, there's no shortage of information out there and ideas out there for how we can reshape what the school day looks like how we can begin to address some of these issues, you know, uh, going back to that AP issue, uh, you know, seniors in high school, the amount of time they spend in school compared to a college freshman, you probably attend school 10 to 12 hours fewer in your right. first year. Therefore you have the space to take on college level subjects. Right. And yet we still allow kids to take six or seven or eight AP classes and right. the grading piece as well. Uh, Kathy, I, I love that idea that, you know, imagine the novel concept that grades be based only on the quality of evidence that students produce right. and the reaching of those standards. Let's finish up uh, this part with uh, some advice for teachers and, and, and advice for principals and, and all educators on how they can talk to students, uh, specifically teens, about stress and anxiety. I, I wonder, is it helpful to be more overt and obvious in talking to um students about the sources of stress and also to have open and honest conversations about how to handle stress. And, and if you think that's an important idea, 
And if you don't, set me straight. But if you do, what are some of the key messages or approaches that we might take when trying to address this issue of stress and anxiety in schools? So, yes, I think there is education that is needed to educate kids about stress and about, and I would say uh, about some of the organic factors that exacerbate stress, like the relationship between sleep and mood disorders, like uh, the relationship between nutrition, diet, exercise, the downtime, those sorts of things. But also what we're learning about how we help kids deal with stress is one of the first things that we need. We need to know that every student has a trusted adult that they can go to at school when they need someone to talk to. And I was just reading about a school that sort of deputized everybody in the school to be those trusted adults. So it might be the custodian. It might be the lunch lady. Uh, it might be a different person than you would think of as counselors or teachers. Now, um, that said, I think those one-on-one -on -one conversations, I think the most important thing is for us to listen. I was working with a school in which they had a student panel come in and talk about stress and the teachers all got to listen to this group of kids. And that part was really important. So I think we need to listen. And um, as one psychologist said, just listen, kids need to, kids need to spill out all of their ideas and organize them without you adding yours. <laughs> I thought that was great. Um, and then after that, well, okay, then what are some options? So I think we say, what, what are some options? And then, then when the student says, well, I can't ask to take that test on another, test on another day, uh, then you say, well, how do you know that? Uh, teachers are more flexible than you think. And then, of course, if the teacher's not flexible, then we come back to another issue. Um, so I think those are the, the pieces that we, we really need to look at is that that education um, of not only how to manage it, but what can you do? Why are you taking six AP classes? Okay. Uh, and, you know, does someone need to talk to your parents about you taking six AP classes? And uh, but yeah, I, I totally agree with what you said before about why do we let kids do some of the things we let them do? Mm -hmm. I wonder sometimes if, um, you know, I, an observation that, I, that I've had, uh, I, I want your thoughts on this before we finish up. It seems to me we're at this place where, and, I, and listeners, you've, you've heard me say this before, is that I think we, we talk a good game when it comes to student mental health, student stress, student anxiety. We talk a good game when it comes to mental health in the abstract. But then when it comes to actually implementing strategies or putting the brakes on some things or rethinking right. the way the schools operate, we seem to right. still be hesitant. There seems to still be that stigma. Do you agree with that? And, and if yes. you do, how do we, how do we yeah. fix that? How do we start to close that? Well, I, I think we need to address directly some misconceptions that rigor equals load mm -hmm. and that that is what's important is that, oh yeah, we're a tough school. We, we have all these, all of these recommendations for kids. So I think that is part of it, but also I think just taking a more um, holistic view about our role um, in, in that stress. Mm -hmm. 
It, really good point there with, with, I think sometimes adults forget that we can be uh, great contributors to the stress and anxiety that students feel. And we can also uh, be uh, the source of reducing that stress and anxiety through the way that we interact with them. Because again, the, you know, what adults pay attention to is what students will start to believe is important and, and, or children will start to believe is important. Right. And, and if we start piling on with the stress and all of that, I, I, I think I could talk to you about this for another hour or two. So uh, fa fantastic, Kathy. I, I really appreciate it. Two questions left here as we finish up uh, our conversation. And here's the first one. And you can take this in any direction you want to. Uh, but educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? That we don't have enough big picture thinking in education. That we tend to see a problem and find a stick-on solution, uh, a program that's going to fix whatever it is that that we have that we have a problem with, and not looking, as I kind of said before, about what what our role might be in contributing to any specific problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can see that where we're always looking for a solution, but we're not rethinking the entire system itself and, and having that big picture thinking for sure. Can you give me an example of a, an idea or a topic that would be big picture thinking that that um, we're not really having a conversation about right now? Well, I think you nailed it when you said what we do with mental with kids, mental health or wellness yes. is that I I get really aggravated at oh God, I'll make everybody mad now. Um, I get really <laughs> aggravated at some of the, oh, we need social emotional learning. Yes, I know there are things that we need to do here for social emotional learning, but when it comes to student stress, the answer is not, well, we need mindfulness and meditation classes or we need a therapy dog in the school. No, we need to look at why these kids have seven classes a day and, and, and why we are piling on the homework with no uh, with no correlation or no coordination between the teachers. And so uh, and I, I could go on and on. And it's not that those programs, it's not that social emotional learning programs are not good or not important. And it's not that teaching kids stress management is not important. Um, the issue is it's a sort of a myopic view of the problem is like, oh, here, we need to look at this. This is the problem. And it's like, no, step back, take, a, you know, take the 30,000 foot view and really look more broadly at at these individual things that are going on in education. And if we have one gift from the pandemic, it would be that that we are starting to look more broadly, I think, at particular problems. So the real question becomes why do we need those programs in the first place? Why do we need to have those? Why are they? Why is that bubbling up to the surface? Right. Uh, last last question, Kathy. As we finish up, it's a question I ask everyone I've interviewed so far in the podcast, and it's a very simple question about success and happiness. Uh, and the question is quite simple: It's what's your definition of success? What does success mean to you? Well, first of all, success to me does not mean money or power. Uh, it the first thing to me, I had three things. I thought about this and I had three things. So I thought first, um, meaningful work that contributes to something bigger than your own ego. Hmm. And I think that is, is what to me is, is success. And then the second thing is that we balance that with what I would call passionate pastimes. 
So your passionate pastime might be your job. It might be education, but I think you need another passionate pastime. So whether that be, you know, cooking or gardening or music or uh, what uh, classic movies, whatever. I think there needs to be something in your life in which you really get to enjoy and feel passionate about. And then the third piece to me is meaningful personal relationships, that you have relationships with people who care about you and people that you care about. And if I can get all three, I think I'm doing pretty good right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I can get those three things to me, that is is a successful life. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think I sense a theme there of uh, success being meaningfulness, meaningful work, uh, doing something that is meaningful to me and developing meaningful relationships. I love that. Listeners, uh, you can and should definitely follow Kathy on Twitter. Uh, Pay attention here. Her Twitter handle is at Real Homework Lady, but Lady is spelt without an A. So it's L-D-Y at the end, at Real Homework Lady. You can also check out Kathy's website, this one is uh, homeworklady.com. And in this case, lady does have an A at the end of the website. So Kathy, you've not made this very easy for people. people oh, no problem. But uh, again, at Real Homework Lady without an A on Twitter and www.homeworkladywithana.com uh, on the website. Kathy, uh, really, really appreciate you taking the time to be with me. Thanks so much. Great. Loved it. Enjoyed it. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to focus on peer assessment or peer feedback. Now, peer assessment is much more complex than self-assessment. While self-assessment does require that students have a clear sense of the learning goals, the success criteria, and be able to make an accurate inference about the discrepancy between their current status and the desirable outcome, peer assessment involves all of that and a lot more. And if we're being honest, as soon as you start adding additional human beings to the mix of anything, things become that much more complex. So we first have to do everything we do with self-assessment, right? Clear learning targets, clear success criteria, teach that criteria through exemplars and allow the students opportunities to practice making those inferences. Yes, there is some work involved to do this properly, but the payoff is on the back end where we have a distribution of labor. We have students being able to assess themselves, right? And understand what's next for themselves in their learning. So we have to do all of that for peer assessment. But with peer assessment, we now have to also teach the students how to give one another feedback in a productive way. Peer assessment can be incredibly powerful, but it can go horrifically wrong if it's not taught properly. So leave nothing to chance. Be very purposeful, especially early on, in how you teach this whole process. You might even consider a protocol to sort of walk the students through step by step in the early stages. You know, I know it's a cliche to say this, but slow down to speed up. You want to make sure that you get this right. Again, I think this is why so many teachers give up on self and peer assessment because it does require a bit of front end loading. Now, protocols provide the foundation for the routine and also some specificity on what to do. So for example, we might have the students examining each other's demonstrations of learning only to consider one aspect of quality at a time, or we may have them just only looking for strengths. We get very finite and very particular with it to try to teach this habit. Remember, peer assessment puts learners in a vulnerable position. It's one thing to self-assess your own work. Yeah, okay, fine. I might not be happy with what I've done, but I get to keep that to myself. But in a peer assessment or peer feedback dynamic, I'm a little exposed. So it might be necessary to begin with something a little less important or a little less vulnerable. 
you know, that again is where generic exemplars come in. You can begin to teach that whole process through through that way. So, okay. So now once you have the culture grounded in a supportive learning focused paradigm, you can begin to explore the different iterations of peer assessment. So when we hear peer assessment, we often think of a reciprocal relationship, right? You give me feedback on my assignment and I'll give you feedback on yours, uh, that kind of arrangement. And while that can, of course, be one way to engineer peer assessment opportunities, there are so many different iterations that can be tailored to give the students different situations and, more importantly, tailored for the specific situation at hand. And I have to give credit to Keith Topping, uh, whose research has been uh, foundational for me in, in my learning and my growth. I've, I've learned a lot from his research. So if you're looking for somebody who is sort of the thought leader when it comes to peer assessment and, and using peer feedback, uh, look to Keith Topping. So one of the first questions we have to ask is whether or not this is going to be a qualitative, quantitative, or both kind of activity, right? It's most likely, you know, most of the time, it's going to be qualitative. We're gonna focus on the quality and subsequently what's next uh, through descriptive feedback. However, there might be times where you ask the students to replicate a more holistic process and focus more quantitatively, right? Judge the overall level of proficiency through a grading process, right? Making a holistic judgment. It's not that the students are giving themselves grades, but that they experience the process of synthesizing criteria to make that holistic judgment. And maybe the focus can be on both, right? An overall current level or holistic judgment and feedback to advanced proficiency. So there are some questions we can ask about that. Again, we tend to gravitate toward the, um, you know, the idea of, of quality, but know that there are de many different opportunities for you to do this. Now, another iteration, of course, is the question of, is this a single assignment exercise or are we using multiple assignments, right? Students could examine each other's writing portfolios and again, take a more holistic view of all of the demonstrations that are inside the portfolio and look for general trends and maybe make some suggestions that address the body of work, not just one singular sample. Now we might ask ourselves, are we balancing strengths and aspects that need strengthening? And 99% of the time you're going to do that, right? Take a strength-based approach. However, there might be situations where all of the students are proficient, right? All of the students are where we need them to be. So for example, senior physics class, maybe everybody's there and the teacher just says, look, we, we're all there. We've, we're proficient, we're competent, we've got it. Now let's nitpick. Let's just look for that which needs correcting and that which needs fixing. Again, I'm not gonna say that that's what you're going to do most of the time, but that is a possibility, right? Another question, are the students working in pairs or are they working in groups? You know, is this a reciprocal relationship where we exchange our assignments or is this a one way sort of rotational piece, meaning that we don't really look at one another's, we just look at someone else's in that situation, right? If it's group based, again, what does that rotation look like? Another question would be, have you intentionally matched the students, right? Have you randomly assigned the students to these groupings? Sometimes random groupings, you know, work really well, but sometimes it's more beneficial to put like with like. You know, for example, in writing, if you match a struggling writer with a highly proficient writer, you might not have a mutually beneficial dynamic, right? The strong writer has much to offer the struggling writer in terms of support and help, and that may be a good situation on the one hand, but at the same time, the, the, the struggling writer will likely not have the same amount or same quality to offer 
the more proficient writer. And that actually might make it worse for them because, you know, they now are more exposed as being less than proficient in terms of their writing, right? So for them, putting them with someone who is who is really outperforming them in that moment may be problematic, right? Again, so I think it's important to be deliberate and intentional about how we put our our pairings together, our groups together, as long as it's, you know, a, a higher stakes kind of a situation. That's not always the case. Sometimes the random groupings work well. But again, it's something we have to ask ourselves about our intent. So not only do we think need to think through all of these different iterations, but we should also consider the outcome or the intention, right? When most of us think of peer assessment or peer feedback, most of us think of correctives, right? What What's next in the learning? But the feedback may not be as prescriptive and, in fact, may actually be more implicit, right? So there's ways that you can increase sophistication and increase thinking that's involved by the recipient of the feedback. Students themselves could begin asking questions that address the quality of the demonstration without telling them what to do. Or they could ask questions that facilitate metacognition, right? What were you thinking when? Those types of questions. So the X and y-axis if you will the x-axis is the iteration and the y-axis is the intent and the focus and the point here is that there are so many possibilities with peer assessment that it's important to be thoughtful about how you execute it right at first i wouldn't try to do them all i wouldn't try to be everything to everyone think about the iteration and the outcome that is most aligned with what you're already doing or most you know aligned with the nature of the subject you're teaching or of course which one is most aligned with the age and stage of development of your students. And that will make a big difference in terms of all the choices you have. Think about where you and your students are most comfortable or where you will be met with the highest possibility of success. That's where you should begin. Now, the added bonus of peer assessment is its natural connection to some of the most important 21st century skills, right? So when you think about peer assessment, it's definitely involved involves critical thinking. Like I'm thinking critically about another student's demonstration. There is certainly some creative thinking involved. You know, it might involve, you know, aspects of creatively providing feedback or creatively engineering metacognitive opportunities for my peer. It's certainly a collaborative effort. So collaboration is there. And certainly there's communication involved. So there's all sorts of ways that peer assessment and peer feedback connect to uh, 21st century skills. And again, I'm, what I'm not suggesting is that if you do peer feedback, you've got your 21st century skills covered. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that peer assessment and peer feedback is yet another way for students to practice those skills, right? It could be a way uh, of, of involving students and seamlessly uh, creating an overlap between your focus on 21st century learning skills but also this peer assessment feedback. Peer assessment, peer feedback is also a way to build a learning community where we all work for each other. We all help each other. We all support each other. And we break down some of the unnecessary competitiveness that can fester in classrooms you know, over time. The goal of our assessment expertise, remember, is not to become experts in and of ourselves. It's to teach the students how to do this on their own behalves. Peer assessment, again, as I said earlier, while incredibly powerful, it can still go horrifically wrong. But at the same time, it's also one of the most underutilized strategies and practices that we have. 
Again, start small, go slow, but honestly, I can think of no more effective way to build a true culture of learning within a classroom than to have a classroom where learning is a collective, collaborative experience. That's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well, at Tom Shimmer. Shimmer Education on Facebook, at Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram, as well as the YouTube channel, Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. Also, please email your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions you have for the podcast to tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Next week, my guest will be Phyllis Fagel. Phyllis is a school counselor. She's an author. She's an occasional columnist for the Washington Post, and she is a parenting expert as well. We're going to focus on how educators can build stronger relationships with families, and we're also going to dig into those middle school students, those young adolescents who are a unique presence within our school systems. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like the podcast, please feel free to spread the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 